Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Welcome back to Jedi Council. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good, and I'm excited to take a minute to talk about Nerdy News Corner. Okay. Our new segment. And the one thing I have to talk about for Nerdy News Corner today is Jessica Jones' new season tomorrow, (gasps) I think. You're right. Yeah. So... I don't Wait, know. does that mean midnight? Uh, yes, Uh-oh. it does. <laughs> yes, uh, That means midnight tonight. Um, I'm very excited for more Jessica Jones. Um, a lot of people, I think... I only say uh-oh because I don't want to stay up all night right. watching it. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, a lot of people really loved Punisher, uh, rightfully so. A lot of people really loved Daredevil. A lot of people love Luke Cage. But my favorite of all of those series, including Defenders, was good, Jessica Jones. I'm excited for a more awesome Jessica. It looks like Kilgrave is back to cause more trouble, which is he's just a gross, terrible character. But boy, if I don't just love David Tennant. Yeah. Uh, looks like another great season. I'm excited. Me too. I'm going to go rapidly through those, mm-hmm. I bet. I predict. Maybe, I don't know, next week is, is spring break over at NDSU. Maybe we can do an extra Jessica Jones episode. I know we've got a guest episode coming up too, so... Maybe we can record that and put it in the bank, or we'll do something with it. But sometime in the future, I think we'll probably be talking Jessica Jones Season 2. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. We might be able to, with a little extra time, plan that. By the way, our special guests that we have lined mm-hmm. up, we have a few, but the one yeah. that's, that we definitely have specifically lined up so far is it's going to be about Blade Runner, or specifically, do androids dream of electric sheep? Yes. Um the book version of it, and I'm excited because we have a psychologist who focuses on things like facial recognition and uh, visual science or his areas of expertise, so if you have any questions at all that are relevant to that story, then please send them our way. That would be awesome. Yep. I'm excited. I haven't seen any of the movies or or read the book yet. Me either, so. which I th- I don't think that's typical of people Mm-mm. to have not seen no. any of the movies. Or <laughs> so we've got some catching yeah, up to do. Yeah. yeah, but I think it'll be awesome. Yeah. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, anything else in the nerdy news corner? I have I, no I nerdy I've news. Heard any nerd news either? I do like um, that alliteration though. <laughs> Marvel has scheduled out for their next phase like six or seven more movies coming out after Avengers: Infinity War ends. Wow. It's unreal. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by I'm that. overwhelmed too. Because at this point, I think I, when I last did the math, there were 400 movies in the... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think there were like 20. <laughs> I mean, that feels like 400. No, it, it really does sometimes. Yeah, it's tough to catch up. Um, but that's great. If people are still loving them and they're still making them and they're, they're making good money. Black Panther, of course, was amazing. So yeah. the bar is high. But yeah, that, that's that'll be good. Um, that's all I have for Nerdy News Corner. Should we get to the topic of the day? Sure, sounds good. Topic of the day, mental health in the classroom. So Katie and I recently gave a talk here at the NDSU campus in the Department of Psychology. They do a weekly colloquium, and every week there's a speaker who talks about uh, maybe some of their research that they're doing. 
And this week we actually did a talk just talking about what can you do if you're an instructor or a professor uh, if you have students in your classes who are presenting with some mental health concerns. A lot of the resources that we presented, um, unsurprisingly, were specific to NDSU, but there was enough interest in the topic that we have decided to turn it into a podcast and, of course, being a little bit more general about specific resources that might be available at your specific campus or institution or university or, or what have you. That's right. And we also, I think another part of it is kind of um, have had people reach out to us asking mm-hmm. us specifically to talk about this. So we wanted to make sure it was available. And we have a blog post, too. So yeah. if you prefer to to read or reference it that way rather than listen. We just want to make sure that it gets out to you in multiple methods. Mm-hmm. Another thing you could do is Modes. listen to this while you read it, <laughs> and it'll be sort of like the commentary track for the blog post, which is kind of an exciting new avenue that we haven't explored yet. Um, maybe something to think about. If you do that, let us know how it goes. Um, <laughs> so... So this is kind of a basic overview. One thing that I think was notable when we did this presentation in our department, which contains a variety of grad students and faculty members in different areas of psychology, Brandon asked how many of you have had a student ask you for help with a mental health concern. And I think everybody raised their Mm -hmm. hand, maybe with the exception of a few people who haven't taught yet or some of the grad students that Mm -hmm. haven't taught yet. And that, just to give some context, Mm -hmm. somewhere around about like 30 people, I think. Mm -hmm. And I would say almost everyone raised their hand. Yeah, and this definitely happens, I think, even outside of psychology. But maybe in particular, I know we've both had the experience of teaching abnormal Mm -hmm. psychology. And you talk about particular mental health problems and treatments for it. And students will kind of stay afterwards and say, I think I might have that, or I think Mm -hmm. a friend of mine might Mm -hmm. have that, and do you have any advice? And so I think that, you know, even for people who have training in mental health resources and things like that, it's you're in a different role when you're an instructor. And so we thought we'd spend some time talking about that in case it's helpful for other people. Absolutely. Should I start with a brief history? A really quick rundown Uh, of the history, yes. Just to kind of set the stage, set the context for mental health on campuses. That's right. I find the the history stuff very interesting. Mm -hmm. And relevant. Yeah. um, More and more, it helps me to put things into context in a variety of domains. So I am going to give history on this particular topic, but we'll link in the show notes to the full article and also on the blog post so that if you want to read more about it, I think it's a really fascinating kind of brief four or five page history of the last hundred years of Mm -hmm. mental health on college campuses. So basically, uh, if go back to the early 1900s. I'm there. If you can. <laughs> I'm there in my mind I'm, space. <laughs> that's good. So the, the faculty and staff at Princeton University in the early 1900s noticed that students were dropping out of school due to mental health issues. So they had well-qualified students with a lot of potential, and yet they were struggling with these emotional or personality issues was kind of how they referred to it at the time. So they really wanted to prevent this from happening. They didn't They didn't want to lose these great students whose lives were negatively affected and society negatively affected because those individuals were not able to kind of reach their potential. So what Princeton did in 1910 is establish the first campus mental health program. Since then, it's standard practice across most college and university campuses to have some form of mental health services. The type that are available vary quite a bit by institution, but usually there's at least 
someone on campus. Um, and this was kind of viewed, started being viewed in more recent times as important as having basic physical health services on campus. And so we've seen that kind of change over the past hundred years where it's, it's commonplace. But I thought I'd read this brief excerpt from the article, which is worth reading because I should say the other thing I like about it is that it puts the college mental health service history in the context of general what was going on in terms of treatment and mental health at the time and also kind of larger societal influences within the United States that affected students and shaped the culture. So it's interesting that way. But I'll start here. In 1920, at the first meeting, and I'm just reading from the, the Kraft 2011 article now, at the first meeting of the American Student Health Association, forerunner of the American College Health Association, ACHA, the importance of mental hygiene was recognized during an address by Frankwood Williams, MD. He outlined four reasons for establishing a mental health program on campuses. One, the conservation of the student body so that intellectually capable students may not be forced unnecessarily to withdraw, but may be retained. I think this is still one of the major driving forces for offering mental health services on campus. Two, the forestalling of failure in the form of nervous and mental diseases, immediate or remote. And so I think this is important too, the idea that if someone on campus is struggling with these things, and there are certain types of disorders that the common age of onset is around college age, that if you can help them in college, then you might be able to actually shape their future and, and prevent problems in the future. Three, the minimizing of partial failure and later mediocrity, inadequacy, inefficiency, and unhappiness. Remember, this is 1920, so some of the language might not be the same language we'd use now. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is trying to um, lead the person to success and minimize impairment. And for the making possible of a large individual usefulness by giving to each a fuller use of the intellectual capacity he possesses through widening the sphere of conscious control and thereby widening the sphere of social control. This position was supported in many other forms helped in the next decade. So I think that even though, again, some of the language around this and the knowledge around mental health has evolved since then, those main purposes stand out as a big part of the reason that this is still viewed as a priority. And the reason that professors come into play here is because often the first point of contact for students can be professors because they students might be unaware of resources mm -hmm. that are available to them, even if they heard about it at orientation mm -hmm. or some other time. They, they're learning so much at that time, maybe it didn't stand out to them and they weren't aware that they can get services. Depending on the campus, often the services are at no additional cost. They might be with student fees, but again, that varies, but they might not know that. Sometimes I've had students worry that their parents will know if they go and don't understand kind of the limits of confidentiality. And so they might seek help from a professor who they're more comfortable with rather than to get more information before, um, to find out where they need to go and before going out somewhere that they don't know. And I've had students kind of in both situations where they're not really aware of what resources are available or they are aware, but they're nervous because they don't know what therapy is supposed to look like and they, they're not exactly sure what's going to happen once they go. Once they go. Um, so anyway, our goal is to just provide suggestions, but our disclaimer is that 
we like those. We have a lot of those. <laughs> You've already heard one. Yes. So here's another. Here's another, and then we'll really get into the main content matter, is that policies, procedures, and resources vary by university. It's important to check with your own university and defer to those over our basic suggestion. These are just, like everything we do on Jedi Council, this is just a primer. That's right. This is just to help get you thinking about these ideas and and. Please look up more specific resources relevant to your specific situation or context. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to talk about some general guidelines for responding to students who might come talk to you as an instructor about mental health problems that you might have, like Katie just mentioned. When we first gave this talk, I asked you, Katie, ahead of time, I said, do you think it's worthwhile asking uh, who in here uh, has had a student come talk to you? And we said, yeah, that might be kind of interesting to just show how relevant it is. But I didn't anticipate that everyone in the room would respond in that way, excluding maybe the few graduate students who haven't had the opportunity to teach yet. So I thought that was actually pretty amazing um, how prevalent that is, at least within our own department. And of course, I don't know how generalizable that is across departments and university, but for that limited sample size, that was striking for me. So this happens commonly enough. So if a student is to come talk to you, maybe after class or have a meeting with you, there are a couple of things that I think are important to do. So the first is just listen to and assess the nature of the problem. So uh, making sure uh, you're fully understanding exactly what the student is going to, uh, making sure you're taking the time to make them feel listened to, make them feel heard, and by better understanding and completely understanding the full nature of the problem, that's going to help you a lot later on in connecting the student with the appropriate resources or professionals that can best help them with the specific problem that they have. The second thing to keep in mind is making sure that you're responding with compassion and acknowledging their concerns. For a lot of students, uh, this is a big deal to come ask for help in this way. Um, so obviously that means something. You must have presented yourself as being open, approachable, or able to provide help or resources for that student. So making sure that you're responding with compassion. Uh, you're validating the experience that they're having because one thing that we wouldn't want to happen is if, for example, there was a professor, and I don't think anyone listening to this would do this, but if a professor responded and maybe brushed off the concern or the problem that the student reported, that might decrease the likelihood or the chances that they'll be connected with a professional who could really help them navigate the challenges that they're facing. And the, and there is there is some research suggesting that students who who need, have mental health needs are reluctant to reach mm -hmm. out and so that's why as a professor you can kind of help kind of close that gap between mm -hmm. the people who need it and are willing to reach out so i think that's a great point yeah absolutely and then the last thing and and maybe the most important is just making sure that you're referring them to appropriate services uh for their needs so this is where it's going to be important to really understand the nature of the problem because you're going to hopefully connect them with the services that seem most fitting for the specific situation or the specific needs that the that the student reports experiencing. Um, if they need end up needing something different, uh, if a different professional might be more relevant, that can be sorted out by the person who you refer them to. So it's important not to feel like you're taking on too much burden. Make sure you just connect them with the professional who you think might be best equipped to help them, whether or not that might be the Disability Services uh, Center on campus, if there is one, or any sort of mental health or counseling center that might be on campus uh, or clinic, something like that as well. 
um, they can assess the problem uh, more completely and refer them to the appropriate treatment or make recommendations or anything like that. And we'll say a little bit more about that. But those are really your three take-homes. One, listen to and assess the nature of the problem. Two, make sure you're responding with compassion, acknowledging their concerns. And three, refer them to the appropriate services uh, for their needs. Yeah, so the overarching goal is really to show that you care, but you recognize your boundaries mm -hmm. as a professor. You shouldn't act as their therapist, no. but you can help by connecting them to one. I think one concern that some people might have is what if I send them to the, a counseling center or something and they don't have anything wrong with them? The first step at, of counseling centers and um, other places, too, is to do their own full intake and assessment. Mm -hmm. And if an individual is found to not really be needing help, they can, they'll can they receive feedback about that. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're going to start treatment with someone who actually has a problem that could be solved in some other way. So if, they, if you think, oh, maybe they have depression and you suggest they go to the counseling center, counseling center will do an evaluation. If they find out, well, it's not really depression, they're stressed out about this financial aid issue, mm -hmm. then they will recommend, you know, connect with the financial aid office. They're not going to have them do therapy for something that's mm -hmm. not relevant. And so that's where it's really important to to give the information and then the people who are have specialized in determining those things, whether someone needs the services or not, can make the determination. Yeah, it's important. And, mm -hmm. and I'm just going to reiterate what you said because I think it is such an important and good point. It's important to assess the nature of the problem and refer them to the professional. It's important that you're not assessing whether or not it is a problem. There are other professionals who are better equipped to make that determination on campus, I think. Yeah, and even people who have training in mental health fields or in clinical mm -hmm. psychology, I don't I wouldn't make this type of assessment right. about my student because mm -hmm. I'm not I'm in the role as the instructor mm -hmm. and it's not I'm not gonna be in the same capacity as a therapist or someone um, who would be able to get the full picture and all of the information. And there is some suggestion, at least from the suicide prevention literature, for example, that um, if you ask people about about their mental health or and about their suicidal ideation, that you don't see an effect where it plants ideas into their head or something like that. What you tend to see um, in the, the studies that I've seen, uh, one comes to mind where they had adolescents who were screened and asked about suicidal ideation. And they looked at people who already had suicidal ideation and those who did not. Those who did not have it, when asked at a follow-up point, did not have an increase in suicidal ideation. So that's inconsistent with the idea that you're planting it in their head. And those who were asked about it who had suicidal ideation seem to experience some decrease just by being asked about it. So in other words, it doesn't seem that assessing for these things is going gonna, is gonna to insert something mm -hmm. into their mind. Rather, what we find is that if you give the resources kind of broadly, then they go to the center and, and then they can take care to see how urgent the issue is and all that other kind of stuff. And as a professor, I personally, I don't like being in a position to determine that because mm -hmm. you already have an, a, a particular type of relationship with that person. That's what they're the student in your class and there are grades and there are all these other things going on. And so it's kind of, um, you don't want to be in, in multiple capacities in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe to expand a little bit on this idea, um, 
on this idea of the appropriate professionals, what we did in the talk and what we're going to do now is touch upon some of the common things or problems that students report experiencing and maybe talk about some of the most relevant professionals that would be appropriate to connect students with if they report feeling those or uh, experiencing those kind of problems. So the first and maybe most relevant or, or central to the talk which we've kind of already talked which about. Which we've yeah. kind of already talked mm -hmm. about. I mean, just to reiterate mm -hmm. a little bit, if students do report uh, experiencing mental health symptoms or concerns, I know this is something that we've both experienced specifically in teaching abnormal psychology and maybe with some of your other classes as well. That's abnormal for me. Um, so uh, most universities have some sort of counseling center. Uh, so Katie had already mentioned, you know, it's important just to make students aware of that. They probably heard about it at some point. It's possible that they've since forgotten about it since their orientation. Uh, maybe they just never encoded that information. Maybe they don't know that the services might be free to them, depending on the specific university situation. Uh, one question that we got while we gave this talk here at NDSU was what happens if a student uh, presents and maybe they didn't have the best experience and sometimes that happens. Uh, therapy is a, a relationship and n not all two people can have a good working or therapeutic relationship. So what we said of course is it's okay to work with a different therapist if the person wants to present again at the counseling center and say look it's nothing personal. I was just wondering if I could work maybe with someone who had a uh, different theoretical orientation or did a specific type of therapy that might be one suggestion. Something else is if uh, there aren't financial barriers to refer out to other local places. So there might be community mental health clinics or private practices in the area where students can present for therapy or assessment needs that might be helpful for them. So just being aware of what's available on campus and what might be available in the community in terms of mental health treatment is, uh, is important for that. Yeah, and, I, and counseling centers sometimes have limits on, it, this is mm -hmm. variable, but they might have session limits or they might have severity limits. Mm -hmm. So if someone has serious eating disorder where it seems like they need a higher level of care, then they're good about referring out. Um, but also, like you said, uh, so they can be a resource too to ask, mm -hmm. you know, I want to refer a student for this particular problem. Do you have suggestions? Mm -hmm. And so that's one possibility. Another possibility is to look on the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies website. They have, we'll link to this in the show notes, they can help you find a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, there are other types of treatments that therapists who are in this directory do, and it's actually pretty specific. It's a very helpful tool, but that way it, it helps you, if you want to help them find a therapist that does scientifically informed treatment, mm -hmm. which I recommend, mm -hmm. then this is a good way to see who's nearby that you might refer them to depending on their situation. Often I'll ask, are you on your parents' insurance or do you mm -hmm. have insurance? And that can be helpful. If not, there are sometimes uh, sliding scale, mm -hmm. low fee services that are other places that they can try. And so sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's useful just to have a variety of options depending on what the issue is. And again, listening to them and, and seeing what seems like it would be the most appropriate fit. And sometimes it's not going to be on campus depending mm -hmm. on the nature of the issue or whatever it is. So um, that's if someone comes to you asking about certain concerns. Another possibility is that you notice a student is displaying unusual behavior, and it can be a variety of things. Maybe they're writing and a writing assignment and there are some themes of suicide or there are some themes of violence towards others or maybe they're acting strange they don't seem fully oriented or they're showing up to class intoxicated 
or they're emailing you and you don't quite feel right about it, most campuses have the equivalent of a behavioral intervention team. And on our, on our campus, you can email through the website to get to a group of people in the way that on our campus, the behavioral intervention team is made up of um, people from student affairs, a faculty member, I'm a faculty member on it, um, so to people from the counseling center. Um, there's also someone from resident life. There's someone from the campus police, uh, an individual who um, is a lawyer associated with campus. So anyway, we have a team of people representing different areas of expertise working together to help students and a lot of the time, the the students that are asked that we're being asked to look at are just faculty members who aren't exactly sure what to do, and so they'll send, and the team comes up with recommendations. Sometimes it's recommending that the student has a few sessions of therapy. Sometimes it's um, maybe nothing, but just kind of reassuring the faculty member that you know they did the best they could, whatever it is. And so I would look if that is an issue I would look on campus um, to see what your behavioral intervention does. It seems like a great resource and it's not like I've seen a huge range of questions to consult on. Sometimes they're kind of low level things, sometimes they're more serious things. Obviously if it's something very serious that you judge to be a threat or something, um, it may be appropriate in a situation to um, speak directly to the campus police or something like that. But again, it's going to depend on the particular details that are going on. And in the meantime, behavioral intervention teams can be helpful in advising that. So anyway, as we said before, I would look to see what the policy is on your mm -hmm. specific campus regarding those things. And that's that's just true for every one of these points. Oh, and, yeah. And we'll just so keep repeating true. it. Yep. <laughs> so, another, suggestions. Yeah. Uh, another thing uh, might be if you have students who come and approach you for class accommodations. So, maybe you'd have a student who'd say, you know what, I have some trouble with test anxiety. Would it be okay if I just come and take the test in your office? Or could I get some additional time to take the test? And though these might seem like reasonable requests given whatever the student might be providing, uh, it's important that you don't make those determinations for accommodations on your own. Um, most, uh, you know, I guess I've only taught at NDSU. Katie, maybe you can maybe help me clarify this. But at NDSU, on our syllabus or on the various syllabi, we have to talk about disability services and say that the students can come and talk to us or they can go seek uh, help at disability services to see about accommodations for their class. I assume most universities probably require something like that on a syllabus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I that, would assume that as well. Yeah. I would be surprised if, if that wasn't some sort of requirement. And if not, it's good to put it on there just so students know that you are ready and willing to make accommodations if they mm. need them. Yes, absolutely. So that's what we would recommend for this one is if students uh, present with some sort of request for accommodations, refer them to any uh, relevant disability services uh center or counseling center and those folks can do an assessment and determine what the appropriate accommodations might be uh, for that individual student given the specific problems that they might have. Yeah exactly and I, I think the key here like we've said before is um, it's hard to get in a situation where you're making decisions yeah. about it. So one common thing that people have told us is that they'll have students say they have test anxiety mm -hmm. for example and so from the mental health training we have, like, I think, okay, that's, that's treatable and it's not helpful actually to make it so that they can avoid normal testing conditions, yeah. but rather it would be better for them to have exposure. But that's 
as as a professor, that's um, I might mention that just as educational information, but I would recommend again going to disability services or going to the counseling center to actually get evaluated and go through the process because what can what you don't want to do is get in a situation where you're making judgment calls and you might be unfairly treating students mm-hmm. because it's inconsistent across yeah. people. And so instead it can be helpful to do that. And then when they seek those services and and talk to you about it, you can be very accommodating, but you have people who have specialized in those areas Mm -hmm. letting you know what kind of accommodations are reasonable and appropriate to make. Absolutely. Okay, so another thing that can come up, I'm going to kind of uh, put a few things together, is that students might have a complaint about harassment. It could be by other students or faculty or staff. Uh, There might be an issue with discrimination. They might disclose that they've uh, experienced a sexual assault. There are kind of a variety of those things, but the reason I'm putting them together is that often there are specific federal laws and guidelines with regard to um, Title IX that need to be followed, and it's not at the professor's discretion of what they're supposed to do. So I actually recommend finding, if you haven't yet, finding on your website your Title IX office, read about the mandatory reporting guidelines, see what you need to do, what the processes are, so that you're very familiar with that. Because I think that, again, professors during orientation might get all this information, but it's you can't remember every single thing you ever learned. And so it's helpful to know if, if someone talks to you about one of these things, if they confide in you about it, um, what the process is in terms of what you need to report, what mm-hmm. you can leave up to their discretion, those types of things. Here again, you can call in to the office and ask, I don't really know what to do about this. Is this something that's reportable? I've read over the guidelines, I'm not sure. So that's helpful. On our campus at least, and I imagine other campuses too, people can make, students themselves can make anonymous reports through the internet if they've experienced harassment or something mm-hmm. like that, um, that goes directly to Title IX, but that's all good to know and rather than try to intervene yourself or Mm -hmm. something like that. Or again, make a call whether something rises to the level of discrimination or not. Yeah, it's important to remember that it's not your job to be an investigator. There are people who will uh, get to the bottom of the situation and make those determinations. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing that's worth talking about, especially maybe related to clinical or abnormal related classes, are is related to upsetting class content. So I think the the word trigger warning maybe gets thrown around a lot. Uh, it can be specifically very relevant in some of these classes. So for example, maybe you have a student who experienced post-traumatic stress disorder and you're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know at least in my class and I think in yours, Katie, you use a lot of video examples to demonstrate maybe what the treatment might look like or what the disorders might look like. And for specific students who might be experiencing specific problems, those things can be upsetting to them. So, uh, you know, all of that information should be on the syllabus, the specific topics. Um, sometimes I know I had a student who came and talked to me about a specific problem they were experiencing and just wanted to explain to me why they were responding emotionally in class. They weren't upset with me for showing it or anything. They just wanted me to know kind of why they were upset. Um, so it's just something to kind of keep in mind and consider uh, as you're developing your syllabus, Um, and as you're engaging with students who might report concerns. 
Yeah, and maybe to insert a little history around trigger warnings, mm -hmm. um, because the the meaning of, of trigger warning has evolved mm -hmm. quite a bit in the yeah. last years, at least in common usage. But originally, yes. like you said, it was designed to talk about people who have post-traumatic stress disorder and something in their environment mm -hmm. literally is triggering a flashback yeah. or is triggering some kind of symptom. So if they have post-traumatic stress disorder due to being... Um, in combat or yep. something like that. They have something that is triggering them. And, and so the trigger warnings were meant to kind of help them to be aware of those things. Well, that has completely changed. People started using trigger warnings um, for other things that were generally upsetting and yes. not specific to things that might trigger flashbacks. Yeah. And then it's gone all the way to the other end where a lot of people now use it as a joke, like I'm doing this just to trigger people and stuff yeah. like that. And so I personally don't, I don't use the term trigger warnings and I don't really... I wouldn't call them trigger warnings. What I yeah. do, though, is in my class, because I do, like you said, we're teaching abnormal psychology, so I talk about things like sexual assault, homicide, suicide, abuse. Like, these are very serious topics. So, again, I'm they're all on the syllabus. Mm -hmm. I always, like most classes, introduce the topic for organizational purposes. And that way students have an idea of what's going on and most of them it's going to be no problem but if they had something personal happen like they recently lost someone to suicide or whatever it might be and they don't feel quite ready to sit in that class of 200 people mm -hmm. and and learn about it then um they have a heads up about it and and so that's nice um the times that i do actually get more specific about content is if I, if I have had someone disclose to me, like if um, someone's a veteran and they say, you know, I have PTSD and I should mm -hmm. be fine in class, but I just want to let you know, then I'll give them a heads up if I'm going to show like a video of virtual reality exposure that has combat noises and stuff. Mm -hmm. And most of the time people choose to stay and they're fine. And I encourage that, right? Mm -hmm. um, the times that I do get a little more elaborate actually have to do with people who get... Um, have blood injury mm -hmm. injection phobias because one time I was showing a video about an in, an eating disorder inpatient unit and it showed some people with feeding tubes and one of my students said she almost um, felt like she was going to pass out and so like to me that I I don't want people to pass out in my class yeah. that is not safe and so if I'm showing a video like when I talk about psychopathy I show a video of a serial killer discussing the acts that he takes while he's while he's doing that and it's a really great video for describing psychopathy but it has flashes of things like um it has flashes of bloody and other types yeah. of things that might like bother someone things. so I, I give them a heads up, like, if you're squeamish, then you don't have to watch this video, okay? And it's not going to be a major part of it. I chose to use it because the content overall is great in terms of showing what this type of psychopathology looks like, but you're not going to be penalized for it. Mm -hmm. I have, um, to, to my knowledge, I, uh, I haven't had anyone tell me that they're super upset after any content. No. I did have someone tell me... Um, you know, like you, I've had some people ex describe why something was upsetting or ahead of time they might say, you know, I'm struggling with this condition. Should I come to class? And I encourage them mm -hmm. to. I mean, it's ultimately up to them, but my goal is for them to have better information and, and kind of face those things. But again, for some people then right. the minority, that might not be appropriate timing and that's mm -hmm. up to them. So anyway, um, I try to just give a heads up about 
but about any content, but uh, I wouldn't say that I use trigger warnings. Yeah. Especially since that means different things now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in the same boat, too. Okay. Yeah. And, and I believe most people, you know, most of these students are exposed to the things I'm talking about. They're exposed to it anyway through other media, so it's not really going to be something specific to my class. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else about that? I don't think so. Okay. Um, maybe we'll jump into getting close to the end here. Yeah. Uh, reducing stigma in the classroom. This was actually something that a couple of people asked us about too uh, before we gave the talk. Said, you know, how can I do this in the classroom? How can I reduce stigma? And someone even asked during the talk. Uh, so these are just a couple of suggestions that we give. So first is just uh, to the extent that you're able, making yourself seem open and or approachable so of i think it's it's it was easy for me to convey this when i taught abnormal psychology that of course i was very open and approachable about mental health problems uh and that if students needed to be connected with resources that i would be available to connect them to professionals or resources so that comes naturally i think in abnormal psychology because it is quite literally the topic but to the extent that you can do that in any class i think that's helpful um, also providing resources so you can put these on the syllabus. So like we said, if you have a collection of resources that consist of uh, campus and local resources for a variety of problems or concerns that students might have, that can be very helpful for them uh, to make them available. Uh, helps the student maybe understand that there are enough people struggling with concerns similar to theirs, that these resources exist that can help reduce the stigma, as well as just putting it out there so they know they're available uh, and they can go get help right from the get-go. Uh, that can be helpful. So if there's some sort of online service, I, most universities use some sort of online communication, you can post those on there. Uh, if there are any local or campus-based events about mental health, so there are quite a few here in the Fargo-Moorhead mm -hmm. area, uh, local and campus events about various mental health topics, you know. Uh, just recently, there was a, an eating disorders talk, for example. So to the extent that you're able to make those uh, public or available to the class or announce them to the class in some way, that can be helpful, too, because that's just another source of information uh, for them to go uh, learn about these these areas uh, and topics and maybe reduce some of the stigma just by being more exposed that people are struggling with these problems. And that's one way to reduce stigma. Yeah, and I think one other thing that I've heard some people talk about is disclosing yeah. their own struggles in class and kind mm -hmm. of not seeming like um, someone they can't talk to. I think that your level of comfort matters a lot yeah. for this and your own personal boundaries. I, Not to speak for Brandon, but I think both of us are probably more on the reserved side of yeah. doing that. However, if I meet with students individually, sometimes I'll disclose more because I feel like in that setting, if it might be helpful to them to know that, um, you know, what they're going through, other people have gone through, then that's different to me than like if you're standing in front of 200 people. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Absolutely that's just not. for my particular <laughs> personality, not not my style. But that's that's another possible way to do that. And one, I don't know if this is true, it's just speculation, but one thing that I have had students comment on is um, they can feel comfortable talking to you or asking for resources. They can kind of, they try to read basically how you respond to students in the class. So if they ask questions and you're listening and reflecting and treating them respectfully, that might be an indication that it's okay. I actually explicitly tell my students, not every class or anything like that, but I from time to time we'll say, you know, and if you have any further questions, again, it's natural in an abnormal psychology class about mental health, 
you can always email me. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about mm-hmm. that. And some take me up on it, but I've also heard back from students after they've months after they've taken my class and said, you know, I just want to let you know, because you put the phone number up for the counseling center, I went and sought help. And that, that really made a difference for me. And so that's nice too. And kind of reinforce the idea that even if I don't know about it, it's still worth putting the number up. And mm-hmm. if people don't need it, they'll ignore it. And if they need it, maybe they'll take, take uh, my advice on, you know, seeking it out. So I think those are our main things. I guess I just wanted to, we wanted to conclude with saying that, you know, there are different ideas or depictions of college student mental health out there. And um, there have been some, I don't know if debate's the right way, but different opinions on whether mental health among college students is worse than it used to be in the past. One of the things about the history article that we mentioned that makes it clear is that it's really it's hard in a way to do direct comparisons because so many things change about Mm -hmm. the mental health structure and society in general that might impact those statistics but one article that i found useful personally and i think you've read it too Mm -hmm. is um jesse single who's a, a journalist wrote an article called the myth of the ever more fragile college student and really dug into the data and looked to see you know what what is the what is the truth about this is there worse mental health in, among college students if so what are the reasons for it so i will not try to sum it up instead yeah. i'll recommend that you read it and and we'll link to it if you're interested because i i think it's a great example of nuanced critical thinking in journalism that really tries to get at a question through carefully looking at empirical evidence and sorting through it mm-hmm. i like it okay that seems like a good stopping point. Yeah. If you have any questions after hearing this, feel free to contact us mm-hmm. either through email or on Twitter and yeah, we can see if we can help. Yeah. If we could boil it down to just a couple of take-home points, it would really be uh, interacting compassionately and validating the concerns that the student has and connecting them with the appropriate professional uh, after that. I, I think if you were going to make it into just a couple of points, those would really be the two things to take home from kind of this whole topic. I agree. And I think feeling um, people can feel more equipped if they know what the mm-hmm. various resources are. And also knowing that at least there's some evidence to suggest just, you know, being listened to mm-hmm. and heard that can help. Yeah. That can help a little bit. It's unlikely to harm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So we'll cut it off there. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll be back next week with our special guest host, Dr. Ben Ballas, to talk about some really cool stuff related to Blade Runner and the associated, or rather, the novel that it was based on. And we've got some more guests coming up after that. We've got Jessica Jones. And if there's anything else that you'd like to hear about, send a tweet, and we'll see if we can fit it into the schedule. With that, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bid you adieu in the way of <laughs> Frasier and say that we're wishing you good mental health. I was going to say, if you have Frasier topics, especially send those our way. Yeah. But that's inevitable anyway. It's going to happen. <laughs> Frasier's going to happen. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> All right. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. 
Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.